This is episode 32 of Ripe Good Scholar, Restoration Rewrites. The changing scenery really highlighted the fact that he did not maintain a sense of time or place. <laughs> it was really frustrating to Restoration critics. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Hi, this is Jeremy Dubin of the Cincinnati Shakespeare Company and co-host of The Good, The Bard, and The Ugly, and you are listening to Ripe Good Scholar. Welcome to Ripe Good Scholar with Sarah Plaskett. Sarah believes that in order to fully understand the relevance of Shakespeare's works in the 21st century, you must examine the history those plays have travelled through since Shakespeare wrote them. Ripe Good Scholar is the show that dives into the archives, theatres and museums to explore the historical evolution of Shakespeare's plays. Join us in examining when and why they were written in the first place, as well as how they have been utilised around the world since then, so that you can see for yourself how the plays continue to be as relevant today as they were in the 16th century. And now, here's Sarah. Hello, and welcome to Ripe Good Scholar. Today, we are used to seeing Shakespeare transform for the modern stage. Theatre companies will make slight changes to the text, so that the message is one that resonates with audiences today. However, most of us would never dream of changing the ending or creating our own lines of dialogue. But restoration theatre companies had no such qualms. Theatre and audiences were changing, and Shakespeare had to change with them which meant drastically altering the text. For this episode, I read the first few chapters of Gary Taylor's Reinventing Shakespeare and a series of articles from the Folger, University of Michigan, and others. If you want to look at those sources and have additional reading, head over to ripegoodscholar.com EP32. Now, let's head to Restoration England. My original idea that led to this podcast episode was for Victorian happy endings. I think a lot of us have heard the legend of King Lear being rewritten to have a happy ending. And I guess me, I always just assumed it was Victorian times. I think it did continue for a while into Victorian times, but I quickly found out that I was wrong on the timing, and it was actually the restoration that led to our Shakespearean rewrites. The restoration. Now that is the period after Cromwell's uh, non-monarchy monarchy. Yes. We'll go back a little bit. So in 1642, there was a lot of civil unrest in England. Um, Charles, the F Charles I had completely separated himself from Parliament on, you know, kind of just breaking himself from any sort of checks on his power. Um, and that he left London to rally his forces. And uh, from what I remember from this, his forces were the Scottish because he was the king of Scotland and England. It was definitely northerners. Um, the stuff I read didn't specifically say just the Scottish, but he went north. The first battle started on October 23rd, 1642. About a month and a half prior, um, on September 2nd, Parliament temporarily closed the theater. Their argument being that 
public sports does not well agree with public calamities. And I'm condemning public stage plays as no more than spectacles of pleasure. Too commonly expressing lascivious mirth and levity. How dare they express levity? Well, it was a civil war, dear. <laughs> I mean, sure, but you know, you gotta have a little levity when you're plotting a bounty, right? Sure. In April 1644, the globe was pulled down. Oh. So you have to remember it had burned down during Shakespeare's life. It was briefly rebuilt and then it was pulled down in 1644. By people who hated levity. Puritans, yeah. Oh. Oh, it was those people. Well, I don't know if it was just the Puritans. They were going to build tenements. I mean, they couldn't produce plays anyway, so they might as well build some tenements. I like how they were like, there's too much levity here. We need tenements. Okay, yeah, that that gets your uh, objective fulfilled. Um, in October of 1647, that temporary ban was made permanent. Mm-hmm. And then on January 30th, 1649, Charles I was executed. And that's when Cromwell took power again. This whole time, theaters were closed. And what's interesting was you had going on not just with the Puritans, but kind of a growing dislike of the theater. Um, There were quotes about how maybe if Charles had spent a little more time with his Bible and a little less time with Shakespeare, he would have been a better king and not died. (laughs) Well. For the next 18 years, the theaters would be closed. No stage plays, obviously no court appearances. I mean, yeah, the court was dead. But that that was the only form of mass media in uh, the world at that point, was it not? I mean, there were books. Yeah, okay. Pamphlets, Bibles. Okay, let's not pretend that the Bible's that entertaining. So then... Cromwell essentially tried to make himself king, and everyone was like, "Mm, maybe not, though. And so in 1660, uh, Charles II returned to England as king. Cromwell died first, didn't he? Well, yeah, Cromwell died, but he had also tried to, like, be like, my son will be not king after me. Hmm, so Definitely not king. Yeah, yeah, you rule us, and you're a not king, and your son's going to be the not king after you. That sounds like king. Don't be silly, it's a not king. Mm, that's true. It does say not king right in the title. So, Charles II returns, and that August, he restores theater. Now, you have to keep in mind that theaters were closed for 18 years, thus halting any sort of... Continuity. Exactly. You, you lost an entire generation of budding playwrights. Poor little bud. The king established two companies that had the rights to perform. Thomas uh, Killigrew had the King's Men. The King's Men got a lot of the Shakespeare plays because it was the King's Men. It was his troop. They owned the plays as much as someone could. Makes sense. Sir William Davenant, who becomes a prominent player in the Restoration rewrites, ran the Duke's Men. Throughout the course of their time, you know, the Duke's men would be allowed to perform some Shakespeare plays, some of the duds, some of the good ones. It was a mix. They were clearly the beaten. While the King's men had um, most of Shakespeare's plays, Davenant 
ended up having the booming success. Oh, plot twist. One of my major sources for this podcast was Reinventing Shakespeare, A Cultural History from the Restoration to the Present by Gary Taylor. Um, In it, Gary talks about uh, Davenant and his success. Davenant was given the second string plays of the second string playwright. Shakespeare being the second string playwright. (laughs) Who was the first string? Generally, Beaumont and Fletcher were considered better playwrights by restoration standards. Who are they? (laughs) In the long run, this arrangement worked to Shakespeare's advantage, for Davenant was the more energetic and innovative manager. With younger actors and few old plays, he could attract audiences only by creating the theatrical future. In this process, he would make even his old plays seem new. Davenant had to pull off something amazing to have success, to overcome the disadvantages he had from the start. This is every movie about a underperforming sports team I've ever seen. No, we, we've got the second string plays and oh, the second string players. We gotta do something big. I know. What if we put a backdrop? I mean, yeah, that's pretty much what happened. So, <laughs> you had these acting troops working with old plays because they had no new plays. But the political t- climate had changed significantly as had general taste in the culture so you had to meet the changing tastes of the culture with something that was written well before that's something that modern shakespearean players have no experience obvious so one of the biggest fastest changes we saw was the changing of theatrical conventions they had more technology at their disposal that they were allowed to make it new with a spectacle of what they could do now this included changeable scenery, indoor theaters, music was a big one. They could have an orchestra and play music, have musical performances. They could even make actors fly. Ooh! I mean, that all sounds a lot more fun than being in a pit with a bunch of people shouting. Really, a lot of the changes we see in theatrical conventions apply completely to Davenant's rewriting of Macbeth. So... In Macbeth, you had the witches, they had songs, they flew, and obviously the scene would change. In addition, they expanded the female roles, because now women were allowed on the stage. Oh, okay. So you had now this eagerness for female characters. They would expand on what was already there. We see this in Davenant's Macbeth. Lady Macbeth and Lady Macduff both have are seen in more scenes with their husbands and have more speaking parts, especially Lady Macduff. Okay, is that is, has that been cut out of modern versions for the most part? Mm-hmm. Talking about Lady Macbeth and Lady Macduff in uh, Davenant's Macbeth and the full track on the Folger website. As well as sharing a scene with one another, each gets additional onstage time with her husband. Showing more of the Macduffs together presents them as clear counterparts to the bloody Macbeths. In fact, one of these added scenes even shows Lady Macduff warning her husband against aiming for the Scottish throne. So basically, they set up these clear 
foils between the two women. I mean, honestly, this sounds great. Flying witches, songs, uh, interesting foils, more women characters. Yeah, and I imagine with the expansion of Lady Macbeth, it's more talking more in the second half of the play. Oh, when she goes loopy. Yeah, would be my guess. That's where we... But also, we see her talking with Lady Macbeth. Probably just being around more in general. Unfortunately for Shakespeare, the changing scenery really highlighted the fact that he did not maintain a sense of time or place. (laughs) Really frustrating to restoration critics. (laughs) I mean, yeah. Yeah, there's a reason, like, uh, a lot of modern productions have, like, a loose backdrop, but maybe they have two or three things they bring in. There's no, there's very little thread connecting a scene to another. You had a growing interest in opera, which is what really expanded the music aspect. So pretty much all of the Restoration rewrites had songs. Or at least musical interludes. Um, and, and not opera in the sense that we think about it today. Opera at the time of the Restoration was probably more along the lines of what we would call a musical today. Oh, fun. The move to indoor theaters, which we saw a little bit during Shakespeare's lifetime with the Blackfriars, but obviously was a much nicer setup now, is what helped facilitate these changes. It also helped facilitate making theater something more for the upper classes, because now seating was limited. Oh, so that drives up ticket prices. And when things are more expensive, suddenly they're more appropriate for the wealthy. And when there's not a pit, you can't just fill it with poor people. Reading from uh, Gary Taylor's book. The actor's clientele changed in part because of the design of the new auditoriums. In part because of the changed relationship between theaters and the court. The new managers, unlike the old ones, were courtiers. Charles II visited the theaters almost every day when the court was in London, which is a big change. He went to the theater. The theater didn't come to him. Yeah, I I guess that you're you're sort of seeing the modernization of the theater in a way that you never saw with Shakespeare. Shakespeare, you know, despite being in the early modern period, it was still very medieval. It was a pit the peasants came to to uh, yell at you stage and if you wanted to go entertain the court you had to go to court trap you were basically a traveling troupe as any other and i think that is one of the most fascinating things about this so you had all these changing technologies at the time but you also had a change in what people wanted to see a lot of shakespeare's initially popular plays were the ones that could provide commentary on monarchy and tyrants and things that applied directly to what had happened. What? People use art to explore the politics around them. Reading from a Folger article by Claude Fretz titled How Restoration Playwrights Reshaped Shakespeare's Plays to Fit Changing Political Norms and Theatrical Taste would have been a good title writer in the early modern period. <laughs> um, 
Not surprisingly, in the context of the restored monarchy, the dominant genre was the tragicomic. Even a play like Richard III was reframed as a tragicomic story about a failed Commonwealth tyrant. Indeed, most of Shakespeare's history plays and Roman tragedies were converted into more or less conspicuous political commentaries. Elsewhere in Shakespeare's work, for example, in The Tempest, the threats of usurpation and rebellion were often muted or diffused. So you have this kind of subtle political commentary going on, but also they didn't want to go to the theater and see everybody die. Yeah, they already had their home lives for that. So what was interesting was a lot of tragedies were actually adapted to some comedy. Um, So what you had was actually kind of a merging of some Shakespeare plays. So All's Well That Ends Well was combined with Much Ado About Nothing. Those are both comedies. Yes. Um, I mean, All's Well is kind of one of those ones that, like, isn't a haha funny comedy. Is a, it didn't end in mass death kind of comedy. You also then had in the Henriad this big emphasis on Falstaff. Big focus on Falstaff because he's funny. Okay, yeah. Similarly, although you saw a lot of just cutting, they found Shakespeare far too wordy. (laughs) (laughs) Just get to the point, sir. All this metaphor and nonsense. So Hamlet was really stripped down. Oh, really? Where Laertes talking to Ophelia and Polonius talking to Laertes, that whole scene, gone. Um, Hamlet's histrionic advice to the players. <laughs> but they kept the gravedigger scene and Polonius, despite the fact that Polonius is one of the wordiest characters in Hamlet because it was funny. So in Taylor's book again, this reshaping of Hamlet satisfies a neoclassical preference for unambiguous heroes and villains, for moral as well as structural clarity and contrast. In general, Davenant disposed of diversions, tightening and accelerating the play's action. The protagonist, too, became more straightforward, less bedeviled by detours and moral ambiguities. Yeah, who needs this ambiguity in your revenge play? Well, they wanted a strong sense of poetic justice. Mm. They didn't they didn't want ambiguity. And I think if we put ourselves into the mindset of people who were just ravaged by years of civil war and unrest, I want this is good, this is bad, justice has been served. No ambiguity. Fair. Now, we also have to remember that the Restoration was the time of the scientific method of Sir Isaac Newton, Ooh. of that crew coming up and positing their thoughts on the world. They weren't big fans of the embellished language of the poets. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's the, the first uh, STEM approach to Shakespeare. So in Taylor's book again, from the perspective of the Restoration, Shakespeare and the Puritans had two things in common. They were both noisy and both unmannerly. Both thrust clowns into the company of kings. Dang. Yeah, they were not fans. They just, they cut it. Cut it all. Cut cut the nonsense. Get to the point. <laughs> we're done. So they really didn't like Shakespeare. Oh, wow. 
Wow. That's aggressive. Now, something that Taylor pointed out in his book that I found really fascinating is that we have to keep in mind that the people of the Restoration encountering Shakespeare didn't have the benefit of previous scholarship. There were no footnotes to explain what was going on, to understand the old colloquialisms. Oh yeah, so it'd be like suddenly having to read something in like the parlance of the 1940s. Yeah. Oh wow. You know, I mean, we read things from the 1940s and obviously older. Yeah. But I think that by the nature of the time, that was probably a bigger difference. There was no transition theatrically from Shakespeare to the Restoration. Yeah. For for lack of uh, a better term, I think Shakespeare is very lowbrow in that it uses a lot of colloquialism. There are works from that period that are written in higher language. They can be annoying to read because people are trying to sound smart, and that always sounds off-putting. But with Shakespeare, it's very much the opposite. He's throwing in his knowledge of the herbs of northern England and has jesters and clowns being incredibly rude in front of kings and so like this really lowbrow language and this colloquialism that doesn't translate 80 years later. So reading a quote from Taylor Dryden and his contemporaries not only had to make what sense they could of Shakespeare's difficult and obsolete language without benefit of notes They also had to make sense of text progressively corrupted by decades of careless reprintings. You know, I mean, this wasn't that long after the first folio and how many quartos were still floating around and how many people still had kind of sort of versions of the plays. Like, it took years for scholars to piece together what was kind of the authentic play. Wow, yeah, so it's just a confusing mesh of different versions, different shorthands. Uh, and on top of that, the language was, or at least the colloquialisms and slang uh, was just not familiar. No wonder they hate it. I hate it just thinking about it. Now, what's kind of funny is, in his book, Taylor talks at length about the Royal Society, which that's what Isaac Newton was in there promoting scientific thinking. What's funny is, is that, you know, you had to pay to get in. So it was pretty much like rich dudes. Poor, no one wants to hear the thoughts of the poors. But what's interesting about it is that in kind of their hat to promoting the scientific theory and scientific thought, they relied on public spectacle. The Royal Society, which Dryden had joined soon after its founding, recommended that experiments be conducted publicly so that their results could be witnessed by as many members as possible. For us, an experiment's validity is confirmed only when it could be duplicated. For them, validity could be established by multiplying observers of a single event. Hmm. So while they hated this flowery language and spectacle of the poets and playwrights, they very much relied on a similar... The same approach, the, the need to draw people in pretty up their work. Yeah. So you had this changing of thinking, this changing of taste, this changing really of what people wanted to see. 
that led to changing the plays. You had Lear and Cordelia surviving at the end, and I think Again, this gets back to not having this moral ambiguity and not having a poetic justice. Hmm. I think Lear in particular is one where you feel kind of like, oh, at the end of it. You know, you feel defeated. It has a very nihilistic message. Yeah, because Lear's one good daughter dies and he dies and everyone's sad. So I think... You know, it's easy for us to kind of look back now and and laugh at the thought of adapting Shakespeare and not just adapting it, but like horribly altering it. Rewriting it. But it's almost like their society changed after two civil wars and the invention of science. Absolutely. And also, he wasn't the icon he is today. In fact, it's during this time that we see that foundation laid for Shakespeare becoming what he is today. By restoration feelings, all the other playwrights that we were like, who? Were better. They were better playwrights. Now we see Shakespeare as this epitome of language. There's a lot to unpack there with that and that we will get into in future episodes. But I think that here you saw that groundwork laid. You saw Shakespeare being part of the establishment of theater. Yeah, and I think you also see, for the first time, people taking what Shakespeare wrote and making it their own, making it a means of communicating ideas that fit the cultural zeitgeist. And those are all kind of buzzwordy words, but, you know, a civil war just happened and a king was executed. And of course, Shakespeare's plays in which the kings muse about the weight of the crown and scheme against each other and worry about what it, what they're doing is right is going to play with people. And it just so happened that Shakespeare's second-rate plays were taken up by the guy who had something to prove. Absolutely, and I think that him getting what was considered at the time bottom of the barrel, as Taylor said in his book, helped accelerate Shakespeare as a big player in theater because Davenant was able to prove from the get-go that Shakespeare could be applied to modern audiences. And that's where this starts. This journey starts. Thank you for listening to Ripe Good Scholar. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to go to ripegoodscholar.com EP32 for even more information on Shakespeare following the restoration. The show notes for every episode are filled with additional resources and facts that can help you further explore this topic. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review. It helps others find our podcast so our community of scholars can grow. Also, make sure that you are on our mailing list to receive a free digital download and be kept up to date on everything going on over at Ripe Good Scholar. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Ripe Good Scholar to keep the Shakespeare fun going all day, every day. That's all for now. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Ripe Good Scholar. As always, the deepest dives and best discussions are happening after the show at ripegoodscholar.com. Join us over there to lend your perspective and engage with fellow scholars. We would love to hear from you. That's all for today. And remember, our court shall be a little academe, still and contemplative in living art.